Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus all that they had done. He took them along and withdrew privately to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds found out, they followed him. He welcomed them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who needed healing. Late in the day, the twelve approached and said to him, Send the crowd away so that we can go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging, because we are in a deserted place here. You will give them something to eat, he, he told them. We have no more than five loaves and two fish, they said. And unless we go and buy food for all these people, for about 5,000 men were there. Then he told his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They did what he said and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them. He kept giving them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Everyone ate and was filled. They picked up 12 baskets of leftover pieces. Here ends the reading. Please be seated. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we come once again to hear your word because we are desperately needy people. We come with concerns, we come with questions, we come with fears. Maybe we just come in a certain numbness. We need words of life. We are glad that you've spoken words of life, so please may they be words that strike our hearts and draw us close to you, and may they complete the work that you intend for them in our lives this morning. Pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, becoming a homeowner about five years ago, six years ago, has kind of forced me to become more handy than I was growing up. So um, when you rent and your um, you know, fan breaks, you just call the owner or the property manager, and they come and fix it. And that's one reason why renting is, is really nice. Once you own a home... You either pay somebody hundreds of dollars to come fix it, or you get on YouTube. And so, uh, so I have learned to fix stuff on my own, and I started with a very, very basic knowledge. To give you an idea, we lived at our old house about two months, and the, the light bulb burned out in our spare bedroom. It was like part of a kind of a light fixture and a fan, and it was one of those uh, light bulbs that had a kind of glass bowl around it, so you have to remove the bowl to change the light bulb. And I couldn't figure out how to get the bowl off, and so I started like turning the whole bowl, and I was like, okay, this is, should do it, and I kept turning it, and it was getting hard, I'm like, okay, but I think it's just kind of like old, and I ended up, I ended up severing the entire light from the fan, like all the wires, just I severed them as I kept twisting it, and so, uh, and we couldn't, because the wires were like in the light fixture, you couldn't access them, and so we ended up having to replace the entire fan because I couldn't figure out how to change the light bulb. So that's why I started. Obviously, I've learned since then, and, and again, because usually it's, it's cheaper to do it yourself. That wasn't the case. 
Um, but uh, I've, I've, I've gotten better at it, and I'm starting to enjoy it somewhat. And right now I'm in the midst of my most ambitious project. We just bought a house, and I'm trying to refinish the basement. So I'm moving walls around, because someone lived there who did some weird stuff in the basement. And uh, so I'm moving some walls around, putting up drywall. And I'm telling you all this for a reason. It's not just me rambling. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm refinishing the basement, and sometimes Caleb will help me. And so he'll come downstairs and like pick up pieces of like you know spare wood and put it in uh, the trash for me or whatever. Or like if I'm hanging drywall, sometimes I'll I'll get the screw started and then like let him kind of pull the trigger on the drill. Um, imagine though that one day Caleb came downstairs to help me, and I said you know again I, I still need to like frame walls on the basement and put up drywall. So he comes down. And I said okay Caleb, um, there's some 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 studs for the for the frame. Uh, they need to be measured. There's the miter saw to cut them. There's my nail gun. Um, I'm going to be back in a couple hours. Please frame this wall, and, and, and we'll see how much you get done in the next few hours. On many levels, that would be a terrible idea, because he's four. So there's, a, I mean, it's, it's not safe, obviously, to allow a four-year-old to even come near power tools. Um, but even just, I mean, like a four-year-old doesn't have the, the, the intellectual knowledge. I mean, it's just not, a four-year-old is not capable of doing that kind of work. It's an impossible request. It's far beyond what, Ke- what Caleb could possibly do, or any four-year-old could possibly do. Our story this morning is a similar event for the disciples. Jesus makes a request of them. He calls them to do something that they are not capable of doing. It is beyond their ability. They are inadequate to do what Jesus has called them to do. And he doesn't do this to embarrass them, but he wants to teach them essential truth of discipleship. And it's that we are unable to do and be who Jesus calls us to do and be. But Jesus is able. We are unable to do and be who Christ calls us to do and be. But Jesus is able. Our uh, sermon is going to be a really simple structure. The first part of our sermon is just the disciples' inability. The second part is Jesus' ability. So a quick recap, um, again, because last week we uh, took a step away from Luke. We have begun a new section of Luke where, you know, initially it's just Jesus comes out of nowhere and it's like, who is this guy who's preaching in a way we've never heard, who's healing in ways we haven't seen? Like, who is Jesus? He's just kind of come on the scene. And here from chapter 9 to maybe chapter 17, the the focus is on Jesus' disciples as Jesus is preparing them uh, ultimately for when he leaves. For when he dies, is resurrected, and ascends back to heaven, Christ is going to leave the disciples. So he's preparing them to be the church. And and, and if you remember, it begins with Jesus calling the disciples to go out to proclaim the kingdom, and he sends them with his authority and his power to to preach in his name, to heal and to cast out demons. And so that's that's how discipleship begins. And then this is the second part. They've been out doing this ministry, and then we resume... In verse 10. Uh, and, and just we know, like, we're not given details exactly how long they were gone, and we know basically what they were doing, but the idea is that they, this was not like an afternoon jaunt in the countryside. Um, the, uh, in verses 7 to 9, it tells us that Herod, the Tetrarch, he would have been the ruler in that area, he hears about what's going on, and he wants to see Jesus. He wants to see his disciples. Again, in a time before the internet, before 24-hour news cycle, when word spreads, you know, someone gets on their donkey and goes into town, and did you hear what's going on? And that person, take, you know, goes back to his home, and then his friend goes to his friend. I mean, it takes a while for word to spread. So the idea is, like, the disciples have been gone for at least 
a week or two, maybe a month. I mean, this has been an extended season of ministry. And they come back in verse 10. That's where we pick up. And on their return, the apostles told him, speaking to Jesus, they told him all that they had done. And he took them, and he withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. I wanted to bring out how long the disciples were gone, because it's important to understand what's going on in the story. The disciples come back, and they need rest. They're physically exhausted. I mean, it's been 24-7 ministry. The crowds don't stop. I mean, the disciples were like healing people. When you have the ability to heal people, you're going to have a lot of interest in your, in your work. And, and, and you got to think, too, I mean, they, they, they were just in a ministry where, I don't know, maybe you have experience healing people. I don't. If I'm all of a sudden healing people, I'm going to have a lot of questions. Like, I don't know how to explain what I just did for a month. Jesus, we got to talk about this. Like, there wasn't just a need for rest. There was a need to just process what all happened. When I was in uh, college, I spent a summer as a wilderness guide. So uh, basically, means I, I led kind of two to three week backpacking, canoeing trips for high school students. So we would go into like remote locations, and it was a Christian camp. And um, some of my favorite memories are from that summer, and some of my like greatest uh, uh, stresses were from that summer. Because again, you're trying to keep 10, 14, and 50 year old boys alive in really remote locations where if something goes wrong, you're going to have to hike out for five days before you can call like emergency services. Okay, so if someone breaks their leg or something worse, I mean, like you got to you got to handle it. And so, and then there's bears, and you know, you're getting lost. And anyways, uh, beautiful, you know, scenic views. And then you're like wondering if one of your campers is dying, and you're not sure. So you come back from these trips of two to three weeks of again being on call 24-7 with these students, and you're done. You're like, I need a day to just be by myself and like process what just happened. Like, I need a couple days. That's where disciples are when the story picks up. They're in that. We just, we need a few days to rest. We need to be with Jesus. We need to talk to him about what just happened. They're exhausted. They have questions. But there's a change, and, and that's the plan. Jesus leads them away to have this time of rest. But there's a change of plans in verse 11. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. It doesn't tell us how that happened, but somehow the crowds, the many peoples, the multitude, they hear about Jesus, they hear where he's going, and they find him. It's kind of fun to speculate how the disciples reacted. It doesn't tell us. I may be totally wrong here. I feel like so the, the Apostle John, right, the beloved disciple, I feel like he might have been, like, you know, able to go with it. Like, yeah, like, at least put on a good persona. I feel like Peter would have just been angry, like, in the back. Like, are you serious? Like, we're, no. Uh, praise God for Peter, you know. Uh, he gives hope to very, very imperfect pastors. Um, we don't know how the disciples react, we can imagine, but we are told how Jesus responds. So the crowds find him, and it says that he welcomed them, and he spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and he cured those who had need of healing. Jesus welcomes them. He doesn't say, seriously, guys, don't you know I have off hours? Like, I'm tired. I have other plans. You're getting in. Like, I have a, a plan for how I want to disciple these 12 men. They're going to be the future of the church. Can you come back another time? He welcomes them. And, and Mark, um, when he tells a story, he actually mentions this. He says that Jesus, this is Mark 6, 34, said Jesus had compassion on them because they were, sheep, they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
want to pause on this, the fact that Jesus welcomes them, he has compassion on them, because this tells us something about God. In Colossians 1.15, it tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. He doesn't have a body. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were forbidden from making images of God because God did not want them falling into the error of thinking that God is like all the idols of the nations. A God who is located in one place, who has a body, who's confined in space and time. They want to know God is, is not like that. He is beyond that. But Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That means when we see Jesus, we're seeing God. And when we see Jesus do stuff, that's God doing that. And when Jesus exhibits characteristics, that's God exhibiting those characteristics. And so Jesus, compassionately welcoming those who are seeking him in humility and urgency, shows us something about the heart of God. I want to do uh, just a little... um, What's the word? Not example, test case, I don't know. Close your eyes. Everyone close your eyes. When you imagine God, what do you picture? Just picture it in your mind. When you imagine God, what do you picture? Okay, you can open your eyes again. What did you see? Is God kind of annoyed? Can you imagine God? Is he kind of annoyed with you? Is he disappointed? I expected more from you. He's just absent. He's just not there. How do you picture God? Because Jesus has taken our guilt and shame on himself, God welcomes you. He he delights in you. He is the father in the prodigal son story who is not content to let you come to him, but he runs down the road to welcome you. That is God's heart for you because of what Christ has done for us. God does not tolerate us. He does not abide us. He welcomes us. This compassion that Jesus shows is showing us something true and beautiful about the heart of God. So when we approach God, if it's through clinging, so here's a, okay, let me back up. Here, but here's a crucial question, okay. God welcomes us. But what if I feel like God should not welcome me? Like I, I know theologically, if my faith is in Christ, God welcomes me. But I, just, I feel like, seriously, God should not be delighting in me. I know my heart. I know my mistakes. I know my failures. What happens if we feel like that? Well, that's where we remind ourselves that God does not welcome us because we are all-star Christians. He does not welcome us because we have served well. He does not welcome us because we are good people. God welcomes us because he sent his perfect son for very, very imperfect people. And so when we approach God, if we're clinging to Jesus, look, I know I don't deserve to be in God's presence, but oh, my faith is in Christ, then God welcomes you. Full stop. No qualifications. And that is our great hope, because we are imperfect people. So Jesus welcomes the crowd. And then to his exhausted disciples, he gives them a challenge. Look at verses 12 to 14. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside, 
to find lodging and get provisions, for we're here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we were to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. Okay, here are the disciples. They've been on this like months-long, like exhausting, crazy ministry trip. They've been forced to endure another long day of ministry, of ministering to people who have a lot of needs. And now Jesus gives them this. Here they are out in the wilderness place. Like people either, it's getting late. They, people have to go get food. And so the disciples have a logical conclusion. Let's just end now and send the people home. Most commentators think this crowd would have been locals. This weren't people traveling from out of state. This is like people who are within an hour or two of their home. They can just go home and get food. But if they don't go soon, it's going to be nighttime. There weren't McDonald's along the way. Like, you have to actually go and make your food. So the disciples have a really reasonable conclusion. Jesus, let's send the people home to get them food. But Jesus says, no, you feed them. That's bizarre. The disciples are inadequate for this on so many levels, it's hard to know where to start. They are emotionally inadequate. Again, I've been focusing on, we have to think of where, like, we have to imagine the headspace of the disciples right now. Been, they're, just, they're exhausted. They're at their end. They've reached their capacity. When they tell Jesus, let's just send the people home, I think there might be a little bit of, I don't have the capacity to handle this, this logistical nightmare right now, Jesus. Let's just send them home. There's a little bit of that present. They're emotionally inadequate. They're, but, I mean, frankly, they're just physically inadequate. Like they, this is, when the disciples look at this, they see two options. Either we're going to feed these people out of our own food, and we have five loaves of bread and two fish, and it is literally impossible to feed 5,000 men and however many thousand women and children with five loaves and two fish. Like that's, that's physically impossible. Or we can go into town and try to buy food for as many people, but that's practically impossible. Again, another uh, gospel uh, telling of the story tells us that would have been like eight months of wages. And this is the people who live day to day. They don't have $30,000 worth of backup cash. So neither option is going to work. The disciples are unable and inadequate to carry out what Jesus is calling them to do. And that brings us to our first takeaway I want us to take home from today is that God uses completely inadequate people to do extraordinary things. Hear that. God uses completely inadequate people to do extraordinary things. And the fact is that it's only when the disciples realized how inadequate they were that Jesus was able to use them. Why does Jesus challenge them, hey, you feed them? Why does he, like, expose them? That they, he kind of brings very front and center the fact that they are inadequate. What if, instead, when the disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, we need to feed these people, what if Jesus just said, okay, cool. Have people sit down and he just does a miracle. What would have happened? Well, the disciples are taking the bread out to the people and there are the adoring masses who are being fed and they're grateful and they're amazed and they're just, you know, lavishing praise on the disciples because they're the ones bringing the bread and all of a sudden, the disciples are thinking, yeah, I, <laughs> we are pretty awesome. Even though it's Jesus doing the miracle. And we've all done this. Have you ever like, been speaking to a friend or a brother or sister in Christ, and you share something from Scripture, 
or some principle from the Bible and they find it really helpful and they're very grateful and in the back of your mind is that little thought, yeah, I am pretty awesome. It's the same thing. Like God's the one who inspired his scriptures, who through his spirit speaks through it and you've just offered that to someone. But our temptation is to think, yeah, that was me. (laughs) That was me. Often, Jesus uses inadequate people. He often has to bring us to the point where we realize how inadequate we are for what he's calling us to do. That applies in all kinds of ways to us as a church. I think as a small church, it's easy to fall into mentality where we begin to think we are a small church, so we will do small things. It's the sojourns and the Emmanuels, the Walnut Street Baptists. Like they're the ones who have big resources. They do big things for the kingdom. But we're a small church, so we're going to do small things. We're going to... I think that's a little bit like if the disciples had said, Jesus, we have five loaves of bread, so we will feed five people. But that's not what Jesus called them to do. He called them to feed 5,000. And Christ calls every church. It doesn't matter if you're huge or small. He calls us to do extraordinary things that we frankly are completely unable to do. To be prophetic witnesses to our community, to grow in holiness, to grow in righteousness, to look more like Jesus, to love. We're unable to do the things we're called to do. To see people come from death to life. We are unable to do that. We're inadequate to doing that. This applies to us as individuals. I mean, Jesus has given each of us a vocation, a family we're part of. He's given us a career, maybe. A mission he's given to each one of us to to bear witness of Jesus Christ. And we are all dramatically inadequate for the various callings he's called us to. And if you feel inadequate, I just want you to know that that's a good thing. That's where we start. Jesus wanted his disciples to realize their total inability to do and be what he called them to be. That's only one side of the coin of the story. Because Jesus will, in fact, do extraordinary things to the disciples, despite the fact that they are completely inadequate, because Jesus is able. Where the disciples are unable, Jesus is able. This brings us to our second point. That first point was the disciples' inability, but the second point is that Jesus is able. Jesus' ability. Let's look at verse 14. Start in the second half of verse 14. So Jesus said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and they were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken, pe- of broken pieces. Jesus feeds the crowd in a way that highlights that he alone in a unique way is able. He didn't have to feed the crowd in such a miraculous, dramatic way. Jesus could have just conjured up bags of money and sent his disciples into town. Hey, go buy food. And that would have been impressive. I mean, Jesus is a rich man then, and that's cool. But there are other rich men and women. Jesus does this in a way that's clear that Jesus alone is able. Because even though the disciples are completely unable, 
Jesus himself, in fact, is able. Again, the point isn't to feed the crowd. A lot of times we focus on, like, yeah, Jesus provided for the crowd, and that's true. Physical provision is important. But the crowd's reaction isn't even mentioned. They're not the point. The point is his disciples. The point is the followers of Jesus, including us, Jesus teaching us what it means to follow him. That yes, we are inadequate, we are unable, but oh, Jesus is able. And so he does this whole miracle to show that to them. If you wanted to reword this kind of main point that we are unable, but Jesus is in fact able, we could reword it this way, that Jesus uses the humble. And humility has two parts to it as well. Part of humility is recognizing our inadequacy, our unworthiness. But the other side of humility is recognizing that Jesus is able where we are unable, that Jesus is worthy where we are unworthy. If all we have is a sense of our inadequacy, but we don't have a deep-rooted conviction that Jesus is able, then we're just insecure. On the flip side, if we don't have a sense of our inadequacy, like if we believe Jesus is able, but we also think we're pretty adequate, well, that's just it's a more subtle form of pride. It's both and. Jesus is able. I think for us, especially for you know, a church that's in a seminary town, a lot of theologically like literate men and women, I think there may be more of a tendency for us to forget that Jesus is in fact able. Right? Like, we know health and wealth, prosperity, gospel is a heresy. We know we're promised suffering. We know we live in a fallen world. We know that, you know, Jesus will make everything sad come aright when he comes back, but until then there will be hardship. We don't have an over-realized eschatology, but I think sometimes we might forget the fact that Jesus really is able to do and be in us what he calls us to do and be. That he really is able to move forward his kingdom, to change hearts, to change us, to give us grace, to be what we cannot be on our own strength. Jesus really is able. Yes, we are inadequate. Oh, my word. And our hearts are sinful. But Jesus really is able. If we would look to him in faith, as we're thinking about the fact that, yeah, Jesus is able, there's an Old Testament illusion in the story that's helpful to kind of pull out. This is not the first time that God has fed his people in a desert land with bread. Jesus, or sorry, when God leads his people out of Egypt, the Exodus, they have 40 years in the wilderness. There aren't rest stops in this wilderness. So how do you, fill them, how do you feed a multitude of people in the wilderness? Well, God sends manna. There's little wafers lying on the ground. That's bread. And he feeds his people for 40 years this way. But he does that through Moses. Moses is the mediator between God's people and God. God's people have need, and, and Moses is the one who goes between. Because how can a holy God be present with a sinful people? We need a mediator. Moses is that one. But here's the thing. Moses dies. Yeah, during his life, he's great. He, God works through Moses to deliver his people from slavery, to give them food, to bring them to the promised land. But then Moses dies. So who's going to go between? Who's going to present the needs of God's people to God? Well, no one. Not in any kind of consistent way. And so in the Old Testament, you see these references to, to back in the time when Moses was alive a yearning for that time when there, was, when there was someone who could bring our needs to God and, and God could work through to bring his power to bear on his people. Psalm 77, listen to this. 
Let me remember the days of old, the years long ago. I think some of us feel that way about this church. Remember, it was like 50 years. Let me remember the days of old, the years long ago, when you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God, please work like you did when Moses was here. Please raise up another mediator who can go between, whom you can work through to bring your kingdom to this earth. Jesus adds a whole new dynamic to the story of feeding God's people with bread in the wilderness, and that Jesus is both God and he is the mediator. He's both God, the one who brings power to bear, and he's the mediator, the one who goes between sinful humanity and the holy God. And the difference, though, is that while Christ did die, like Moses, he came back to life and he lives forever. And we no longer are waiting for someone to bring our requests to God for God's power to be channeled through. We have that anytime we approach the throne of grace. Our mediator stands for us and fights for us. He brings our requests to God. And he brings God's power to bear on our lives. So yes, we are unable, oh yeah. Oh, Jesus is able and he is very present. This brings us to our takeaway number two, which is similar to the first. It's just a simple, simple truth. I am unable, but Jesus is able. And this may be corny, but I want you to remember this. So I want you to repeat this with me. Say it with me now. I am unable, but Jesus is able. Let's say it one more time. I am unable, but Jesus is able. We want to take that truth into every sphere of our lives. I am a husband and a father. It means I'm called to lead my family, to love my wife, to lay my life down for her. Oh, I am unable to do that. But Jesus is able. I've been called with the most amazing calling on the planet, which is to pastor you all. I am unable to do that. But Jesus is able. Scripture calls us to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and strength, with no competition. We are not able, but Jesus is able. Scripture calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to only speak what is helpful to building others up, to considering other people's needs more important than our own. We are unable. But Jesus is able. We've been given a mission to be a prophetic witness, the aroma of Jesus to a dying world, and we are unable to do that. But Jesus is able. We are unable to be and do what Jesus calls us to be and do. But oh, Christian, the spirit of the risen Christ lives in you. He dwells in you. So yes, we are unable, but he breathes life into our souls and he gives us courage and he gives us strength to be and do who he calls us to be and do. Don't trust in your strength. Don't trust in the strength of another. Trust only in the power of the Spirit who dwells in you. And this coming week, lean on that power. Expect that power as you step out in faith that Christ will give you what you need 
to be and do who he's calling you to be and do. Because we are unable. But Jesus is able. Let's pray. Christ, I pray that we will live into the freedom of that knowledge that truly we are really, we, we just, we are inadequate to be and do who you've called us to be and do. We can't do it. We've tried. And we, we fall short again and again and again and again. But give us dreams of you that are big. Set our minds ablaze with your glory that you are the risen Lord and death could not hold you and you reign in unimaginable power and beauty and splendor and you live in us. We, just, we, need, we need you to even show us it's true because we forget. May we be a church, may we be a people who are very honest with our own inability, very open with our own weakness, but oh, we are filled to the brim with a deep conviction that you are able to do far more than we can imagine. And we pray all these things in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.